Greetings and welcome to episode 55 of Beyond Wasya. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the comfort women, a phrase that most people are familiar with but probably wish that they knew a little bit more from a historical perspective. What do we know? What is the state of the field of research concerning the comfort women? Who were they? What were the conditions under which these women uh, had to labor? Um, what happened to them afterwards? Um, and what is the legacy of the comfort women? Uh, the comfort women, uh, we can probably think about as one of the uh, war crimes, uh, essentially, that many people think that the Japanese uh, should be held responsible for. Uh, but of all the sort of atrocities that occur during the uh, war in Asia, um, this is probably the one that has the least amount of prosecution or uh, uh, sort of compensation or responsibility, um, you know, public visibility, open admissions that this happened um, and that it was something that should be acknowledged, you know, in the same category as uh, bi uh, 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 biological warfare uh, or the massacre at Nanjing, um, you know, things like this. Um, and it's not one of those that has gotten that the degree of attention um, in that sense, okay? Um, so we want to sort of rectify this a little bit and give it its due. And in this episode, I'm hoping I can sort of introduce you into uh, 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 what we know about the comfort women system. So let's begin with the origins of the system. Uh, the objectives of the comfort women system relate to problems that, uh, you know, you might say are encountered in one form or another fairly universally among military forces, okay, uh, throughout history as well. What you get is you will get the assumption by high command. You will get the assumption by people who are in charge of making big decisions for the military whenever it's in lands outside of your own lands. You're on military campaign, you have bases abroad, and you have a lot of men, a lot of men uh, in one area, and they're sort of confined. They don't have the freedom to sort of just go off on their own and interact with local populations and whatnot. They're under military discipline, uh, so they're going to be in confined, uh, disciplined spaces in which there are pretty much, you know, 100% men and no women whatsoever for long periods of time. The general assumption among the high command is that these men require sexual outlets uh, in the best of times, even when you're just sort of on peaceful campaign, um, and in the worst of times, if you actually have an active battleground, the stress of war, then they're going to need sexual outlets even more so. Even more so. Um, one way or another, however, it's pretty much taken for granted. It is assumed um, that you have to deal with this problem. You can't just have a bunch of men uh, with guns in their hands um, in foreign lands and not think about uh, uh, sexual issues. Um, if you don't think about it, then you're going to have bigger problems on your hand. This is the assumption. Uh, if you don't take any sort of proactive measures to think about how am I going to get sex for these men, um, then it's going to lead to uh, rape. Uh, it's going to lead to rape, uh, which will lead to local uh, disorder among the populations that we're hoping not to have conflicts with. It's going to make our job harder if all the locals hate us. Uh, yes, we're in war. Yes, they're not going to. They're already predisposed not to like us. Uh, but if our men go around and they try to find their sexual outlet by raping everyone, that's going to make it even worse. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that even if necessarily um, you don't uh, uh, engender this sort of um, uh, antipathy among local populations, um, sex, sex will happen, right? It's sort of like, you know, Jurassic Park, life will find a way. The assumption is that sex will happen one way or another, whether you like it or not. Um, and not only could it lead to rape and stuff, but even if it's not rape, even if they just, the soldiers sort of find a way on their own to go out um, and pay local prostitutes or whatnot, uh, that's still not good because it'll lead to disease. And this is unregulated and the disease then will spread among your soldiers and it could potentially, you know, uh, 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 take them out of commission. You'll, you'll have soldiers who can't fight now uh, because they have syphilis or they have, you know, some horrible sexually transmitted disease uh, because you didn't regulate the system. So one way or another, um, you know, the, what, the, what, the, what, the, what the Japanese are setting up 
in the 1930s and in the 1940s is they're trying to come up with a way uh, to, in their mind, solve a problem that uh, most militaries throughout time have uh, uh, felt that they need to deal with in one way or another. And they take these basic assumptions into uh, the formulation of their policies. Now, let me start off with two quotes, two quotes from Japanese uh, uh, high command that will illustrate these different priorities. One, the priority of uh, having, uh, uh, creating benefits to the soldiers and uh, helping to facilitate military discipline. And two, benefits, per perceived benefits with relations with the locals. That's what a comfort women system or just, you know, if you don't uh, regulated prostitution, essentially, um, that's what uh, 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 the high command wants to achieve. First is a quote from the Japanese war ministry on the benefits of such a system, regulated prostitution in a wartime environment in foreign lands. Uh, quote, the psychological influence received from sexual comfort stations is most direct and profound, and it must be realized how greatly their, their appropriate direction and supervision will affect the raising of morale, the maintenance of discipline, and the prevention of crime and venereal disease. Okay, you see right here uh, the acknowledgement that we need to do this. It has psychological uh, uh, comfort for the men. It's very valuable to them. Um, and also, it will help raise their morale. It'll help us maintain military discipline, and it'll prevent crime and venereal disease. Um, this quote entirely is looking at uh, uh, the benefits for us. Okay, not for the locals. Uh, you know, we want to have discipline in our ranks. Uh, we want soldiers who are ready to go into battle. Um, and uh, uh, regulated wartime prostitution is the way to, to make that happen. All right. Another quote is from a Japanese officer in 1938 when he was talking about the need for a more regulated system than, than, than they had had uh, be beforehand. Before, it's pretty much just war in China, um, and it was sort of in fits and starts. With 1938, you've got full-fledged, constant war, um, uh, and you need to start thinking about a larger, more regulated system. This Japanese officer says, quote, According to different sources, the strong anti-Japanese sentiment among the local Chinese has been caused by the widespread raping by Japanese troops in many places. The frequent occurrence of rapes in different areas is not merely a matter of criminal law. It is serious treason that damages the occupational order, that obstructs the military actions of our entire army, and that harms our country. Therefore, the acts of individual military personnel must be strictly controlled. At the same time, facilities for sexual comfort must be established immediately to prevent inadvertent violation of the rules due to the lack of such facilities. Now, in this quote, you still see a huge emphasis on benefits to us. It, you know, it harms our country. It hurts military discipline, but they open up. The whole justification for this is that strong anti-Japanese sentiment among the local Chinese is caused by widespread raping by Japanese troops. Okay, and they're saying that is the the essential problem. Uh, you know, it's hard enough to be fighting this quagmire in China to begin with. It's going to be even harder if our Japanese troops have no regulated sexual outlets and we have widespread raping. You're just going to give rise to more insurgencies, um, um, you know, and that's not going to help. Now, all armed forces, essentially have explored various mitigating measures for this perceived problem, and most have come to some form of the same solution. The difference with what we're talking about with Japanese comfort women is the matter of degree, the intensity of the war zone, the lack of oversight, and the resources of the host country to enforce their ideals. And we, as we'll see, there will be ideals, okay? But in the case of the Japanese empire, the conditions of the uh, 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 war throughout Asia uh, uh, are all so intense that they exacerbate what was previously a fairly common phenomenon among military troops everywhere. Uh, they will exacerbate the situation um, to the point where the comfort women uh, nowadays is often seen as one of the most egregious forms of atrocities during World War II that was inflicted upon people who didn't actually die. Some comfort women w would die or commit suicide, uh, but you know most of them would survive and live and have to live with what happened. Um, and this is going to be another one of these reasons why it doesn't necessarily get the attention that some of the other atrocities got. Oh, Battle of Na uh, Massacre of Nanjing. Uh, you know, you have numbers, tens of thousands of people slaughtered. They're dead. That, 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 that is a number you can hold up in a court, international tribunal. Um, atomic bomb. You, you can quantify that. 
Okay, uh, it's tough to quantify comfort women because most comfort women survive, um, and they have to be survivors who live with this uh, uh, insane trauma for the rest of their lives. Okay, all right. Now, the earliest organized Japanese uh, prostitution that we know of was in the Japanese Navy in various Northeast Asian naval ports like Dalian and Qingdao um, in the areas that Japan sort of had colonial leases on in China. Um, uh, we also know that they uh, um, had organized uh, prostitution in Shanghai as early as 1932 as well. There was a brief military engagement in Shanghai in 1932 that would be a preview of the much more uh, uh, full-scale engagement in Shanghai in 1937. Now, um, prior to 1937, as far as we can tell again, it seems like the system of organized prostitution uh, around Japanese military installations was a little more regulated and closer to the professed ideals, and that these ideals went downhill once you actually had full-scale war um, after 1937, and especially with the entry of the Allied powers. Um, then whatever resources you had to sort of regulate the system and make sure that you are uh, re uh, implementing your ideals uh, sort of goes out the window. It's just it's not a high priority anymore, and uh, you know it's going to lead to a lot of abuses of the system. What were the ideals, though? Let's first sort of approach this because we do have documentation that 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 you know sort of says um, since we are going to be doing this system, you know, the Japanese, everyone, no one wants to think of themselves as doing horrible things. All right, uh, everyone justifies what we do um, in positive terms, and we are able to convince ourselves that we're doing a good thing for the larger good. Unless you are a totally sadistic serial killer, uh, you 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 uh, you know consciously and unconsciously justify whatever you do in your daily life as something that's good, even if other people might look at it and say you're evil. You probably don't think you're evil yourself. So the Japanese probably didn't think that they were doing such an evil, horrible thing. So what were the ideals that initially animated this concept of how we're going to do this differently and do it right? Well, they said that there's going to be compensation. All right, there's going to be compensation, financial compensation, rate, uh, uh, systematized compensation um, in terms of money, in terms of food, um, and th this compensation uh, will be equal to or more than what our own Japanese soldiers make in recognition that this is sort of, this is a wartime environment. Uh, you are sort of in the military if you are a, a, a comfort women, um, and you're performing actually a very positive military service. Okay. Uh, there was also an ideal that uh, uh, standards of hygiene would be maintained, that there were going to be regular uh, bathing facilities, that there were going to be regular uh, daily, in daily inspection of facilities and women's bodies, that uh, there were going to be uh, adequate condoms that were going to be uh, you know, forced upon the Japanese men. You are required to use these sort of things, and we have enough supply for all of you as well. Uh, there was also supposed to be regulated hours and, you know, a, a trained personnel to staff these facilities, the same people every day, not, you know, a stranger, a, a, a revolving door of military soldiers who have no stake in this particular comfort woman station. Uh, there'll be certain hours. You're not going to work all the time. Um, and you might actually, you know, it's going to be hours that are a little more humane to your needs. You have breaks, you have lunch breaks, you know, these sorts of things. You don't work every single day. Uh, also, and here's the thing that's often surprising, is that initially it was supposed to be voluntary participation. Okay, uh, Women were not necessarily supposed to be coerced into this. And as we'll see, the, uh, the, the Japanese, the way that they went about uh, creating this system uh, uh, would include some elements that would actually allow the Japanese to convince themselves that many of these women uh, were voluntary. They were not coerced. And we're thinking, well, how is that possible? We're, we're, we're going to look at the evidence of how comfort women uh, got recruited. Um, and we'll find out uh, that uh, you know the way that this happened, although we look at it and say, this is total coercion. They had no choice. Um, you can see the seeds of the idea that this was voluntary participation. Therefore, you're not coerced. Therefore, it's not a war crime afterwards. All right, we'll get to that in a minute. Now, it's impossible. I also have to give this big caveat. It's impossible to paint one general portrait of the system because it wasn't one integrated system at all. It was especially after 1937. Uh, during the war, it was haphazard and improvisational pretty much everywhere that it was implemented. And in fact, if you are a historian and you want to study uh, comfort women, actually do historical research, it's really hard because you find out very quickly you can't even identify a single consistent term for what these places were called. All right, the phenomenon is regulated military 
prostitution or military-run prostitution. Okay, that's the phenomenon we're talking about. Uh, but if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to study comfort women, and I'm just going to look for the terms of comfort women wherever I'm looking in the Japanese archives um, or the Chinese local archives, and you're going to find out that's not going to work. Sometimes they were called comfort station, as in the one of the quotes that I read earlier. Uh, but we have many different types of euphemisms. Um, and they aren't just deliberate, oh, let's sort of hide what we're doing so no one can tell what it is. It was They didn't necessarily recognize that there was a consistent system across the board that everyone had to conform to. So what do we see in the historical documents? Well, sometimes it's called a comfort station. Sometimes it's called an imperial military guest house. Sometimes it is the Lotus Corps. Sometimes it was called an entertainment facility, the Voluntary Service Corps, a comfort camp, a soldier's paradise, an officer's club, a happy house, and my personal favorite, the Japanese-China friendship house. These were all terms that were used to describe the essentially same phenomenon of military-organized prostitution for soldiers. Okay. Now, where were comfort stations? We know that they existed in all Japanese-occupied lands, from Siberia to the Solomon Islands to Burma. We don't know a whole lot about how it actually operated in most of these areas. By far, the majority of our evidence comes from China, wartime China. Uh, but we do know that the system, if you can call it a, a consistent system, uh, did exist in all Japanese lands. Where did the women come from? Outside of China, outside of the battleground of China, it seems that the majority were Korean. About 80% of the women, as far as we can tell, were probably of Korean origin. Uh, about 10 to 15% were Japanese women. All right. And about 5 to 10% were uh, Taiwanese or locals. Okay. Uh, the variation, however, was enormous. In the Chinese interior, uh, where the system became most rampant, uh, it could be in some places 100% Chinese and no Koreans, no Japanese, no Taiwanese whatsoever. Or it could be a mix. Um, you know, it's wartime. This is a fluid situation. It changes a lot. And it wasn't a consistent uniform system to begin with. But generally speaking, you're thinking, where do they come from? Uh, they come in general from the earliest colonies and from the, ho the home islands, Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Um, and then if you're in a wartime environment in China or Southeast Asia, you will draw upon the locals a little bit more, sometimes entirely, like in many places in China, the uh, Japanese uh, soldiers are marching through rural areas and they, get, they, they, they take a new uh, plot of land and they want a comfort station. They're going to draw their women entirely from the local population. They're, they're not going to say, hey, you know, can you come across battle lines and bring in X number of Japanese women from, from uh, uh, Tokyo, uh, X number of Koreans? No, I mean, it's going to be all Chinese. Chinese. All right. So think about that sort of variation. There was a clear sexual hierarchy among the women. Uh, prices were different. All right. There was a price list according to your ethnicity. Generally speaking, it was from where you came from. And we can once again see this sort of, you know, the ugly uh, racial orientalist attitudes come out. Um, we know that the uh, highest prices were paid for the women from Japan. You want a woman who comes from your own home islands, um, you're going to have to pay big time, all right? The Japanese women uh, are going to be the most expensive. Uh, next was the Koreans um, and the Taiwanese, um, then the Chinese after that, um, and then the locals, uh, oftentimes, who are seen as at the bottom of the hierarchy, okay? Uh, there were actually even some Europeans who were uh, pressed into comfort women uh, service as well. Okay. Um, now, the women's value, as I said, was determined on this basis, where they came from, and sort of their perceived purity or cleanliness or proximity uh, to the homeland, the Japanese homeland. Um, oftentimes, uh, you lost your original identity, uh, everything except for your ethnicity. You were from Japan, you were from Korea, Taiwan, uh, China, whatever, um, but you would lose your original identity, and when you were in a comfort station, you would be forced to assume a new anonymous identity. Uh, you are, uh, sometimes they were given a number, you're just Japanese, you know, uh, 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 comfort women, number 453. Um, sometimes you would be given a Japanese name, even if you're not Japanese. Uh, these are Japanese soldiers, and they want to, you know, maybe he can't even afford a Japanese woman, but he wants to think that he's with a Japanese woman. Uh, so you give Japanese names to all of the women. Uh, sometimes it would be, you know, the soldiers would give their own local nicknames as well. And that could be a Japanese nickname, a Chinese nickname, whatever. The end result, of course, is that all of these are dehumanizing and disenfranchising. You are, you are being stripped of your original identity. What are the total numbers? I mean, the 
stuff's really tough uh, to figure out. All of these atrocities are really tough to figure out uh, because they occur during wartime. It's pretty. It's always hard to know exactly what happens during wartime. It's hard to impose uniformity up, uh, upon whatever's going on in wartime. And then, as you'll see, there's going to be a, an alarming trend with all of the atrocities that we talk about. Is that immediately after World War II is over, you pretty much get the the outbreak of the Cold War, and the Cold War will influence decisions on how to look in or not to look into most of these atrocities. Um, and so, it's it's difficult to know this stuff. But, however, you want a number, I'll give you a number. We think perhaps maybe 400,000 uh, women were pressed into comfort women's service. Uh, probably about half of those were in China alone, the China uh, military theater, where they were most likely treated most brutally. And it was the situation was as, uh, uh, as close to en enslavement as you're going to see anywhere across the Japanese empire. Um, now, during wartime, most comfort women were coerced into service, not voluntary. But oftentimes, there was the perception that they were voluntary. All right, how do you reconcile all of this? How did it actually happen? Were women dragged from their house? If I say it's coerced, not voluntary, were they dragged from their house at gunpoint? No. All right. Usually what you had, whether it was in Korea, whether it was in China, wherever it is, Taiwan, um, you have local male or sometimes even female collaborator, uh, collaborators, um, and oftentimes the, the way that you would convince a woman to do this is by convincing her that she was taking a job for something else. Deceptive job offers. Now, I told you that the, the Japanese need to have a way to think that this is voluntary because no one thinks that they're doing evil things most of the time. Okay, um, and so what happens is usually most women were often recruited with offers of fake jobs in a distant place, whether you were from Korea or from a rural village in occupied China, okay? And you would use local collaborators to make those job offers. Now, ultimately, there is a Japanese gun at the end of this chain of command. If you're trying to say, you know, find, pin down ultimate responsibility, of course, the Japanese are the ones in charge. And they create the situation and the incentives and the imbalance of power to provide an incentive, a very strong incentive for, for, for local collaborators to work with the Japanese. Okay? Uh, but, you know, from many of the Japanese soldiers' perspectives and often the high command, they're saying, hey, we have paperwork here that says there was supposed to be compensation, regular hours, regulated, and these were voluntary. These women were all chose to do this. They weren't coerced. And... There's a kernel of truth to that. They have plausible denial. Okay. Um, yeah, so oftentimes you, you, you would be recruited. Let's say you're in a rural village in Korea or China. You're poor to begin with. I mean, all the comfort women are coming from poor areas for the most part. All right. I mean, you're, you're not coming from a wealthy family. If you're a wealthy family, if you're a wealthy Korean family, uh, you probably already have fairly close ties with the Japanese establishment. Um, and you're probably on pretty good terms with them. And when the order goes out to say we need to hire, we need to get, you know, 100 Korean girls of this particular age in order to be sent to, you know, this station abroad, um, you know, very likely very likely the Korean families with wealth would be able to say, you know what, you know, don't, don't touch my family um, and I'll make a, a, a donation to the local bureau of whatever, or I'll make a donation to the war effort. Okay. Uh, the wealthy are not being uh, uh, conscripted or coerced into this system. And most likely the order did go out officially. These are jobs in hotels. You know, you want to come work in Dalian in a, in a, in a, in a high class hotel. Um, you know, we'll transport you there and everything. Once these women do it, uh, poor women from rural areas, um, once you actually get on that train or get on that, you know, bus or whatever it is and leave your family, you're vulnerable. You're isolated. And it's only when you arrive later on when you realize this isn't a hotel. This is, you know, what am I being asked to do? And what are you going to do? Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to get out of a situation like this. So usually they're tricked. All right. Usually they're tricked. Not always. Sometimes it really is quite open. We need we need prostitutes uh, go into poor rural areas where women might be willing to 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 do this uh, unpleasant work because their family needs money. Now, that also happened. That also happened. However, we know most former comfort women later on when they started to talk about their experiences 
would often refer to the local collaborators as the biggest traitors of all. That's oftentimes their anger would be reserved, not necessarily for the Japanese soldiers who patronized the comfort women. Uh, sometimes they would even say, you know, uh, some of the Japanese soldiers, I felt sorry for them. Uh, they were going to go off and be horribly killed in battle the next day. They didn't want to be in this war. They were scared. They missed their mommy. Um, and, you know, they're just here for what you would expect a young man would be here for. Um, but they reserved their true, not always, sometimes they said the soldiers were horrible people as well. Uh, but one consistent thread you see in their oral uh, uh, testimonies um, is that uh, uh, the collaborators, the local collaborators, people from their own background, whether you're Chinese and it was the local you know, Chinese headman of your village or you know, a, a, a Korean back home who tricked you and arranged for this, that's the one they reserved a lot of their most uh, visceral anger for. Collaborators were also in a very tense relationship with the Japanese as well. Um, if they recruit a woman and she later causes trouble or she later escapes, um, he could be on the hook for that and he would be responsible for financially compensating the Japanese as well. All right. And sometimes you have to allow for the possibility that the Japanese say, we need prostitutes and you need to be honest that this is a prostitution business that we're recruiting for and go to poor areas where that'll be, you know, a, a, a big incentive. And the local collaborators say, I'm never going to get people like that. I want to exceed the quotas and please the Japanese. I'm going to lie to the locals. And sometimes that happened as well. It was the collaborator who lied. I mean, this is, this is a really messy, complex system. Uh, it's hard to even call it a system. And that then, of course, would again give the Japanese plausible denial that these women, uh, uh, they thought the women were being told the truth, but local collaborators tricked them into saying, hey, yeah, it's a, it's a job as a maid in a distant hotel. Something like that. How could a woman escape? Uh, we can see the most common method of escape that we see in some of the oral histories um, is that they would make up an excuse of a death in the family. Uh, you know, I need to go on leave. I need to go home and help bury my mom or whatever. Um, and that would be one of the few excuses that the Japanese military command would actually listen to. Um, and then once you get the right to go back home, you simply wouldn't come back. Um, and try to evade them when they come looking for you. Now, I want to read another quote, a local uh, Chinese decree from a uh, Chinese government office, a county office in the heartland of China, um, in which it helps us understand how this all works. I'm telling you this is messy, right? Um, I want to read this uh, extensive quote for you from a historical document that historians have found, in which it reveals how everyone's mixed up in this situation together. You have It, it shows how you have direct mil uh, Japanese military involvement. You have uh, uh, evidence of the nature of local Chinese collaboration, and you even have the ideal on paper of compensation and regulated conditions that are supposed to be somewhat humane. Okay, um, this is, you know, li li listen very carefully to this because there's all kinds of things that we can uh, uh, dissect from this document. By order of Wenshui County Office, this is in Chinese originally, the Hejiaxiang brothel in the county seat was established to protect the county's residents. Since its establishment, good residents in this county have been safe. However, it has been made clear that recently the brothel does not have enough prostitutes in service. The Imperial Army Authority has currently ordered that the number of women be increased within three days. Therefore, in addition to the women submitted by the county from the city, all villages of 300 households or more must submit one woman to be a prostitute. The women selected must be around 20 years old, healthy and good looking. They must be sent to the county office as soon as possible for examination. Each of the selected women will be given a one-time payment of one silver dollar and provided with the following monthly benefits by the Association of Maintaining Order. 25 kilograms of wheat flour, 10 cups of millet, 2 pints of kerosene, and 50 kilograms of coal. In addition, the women may enjoy gifts from brothel users. This is an important and urgent matter. Wow, there's so much going on here. The documents in Chinese. The local Chinese administration is issuing this decree. Okay, are they coerced? Yes, the Japanese military is around. They've conquered the region. Uh, how much autonomy do you truly have? However, the Chinese are issuing the order. Okay, they've received an order from the Japanese military, and it says that you know the brothel in our county was established to protect the county's residents, and we have been safe as a result of it. All right, but the Imperial Army has now ordered that we increase the women. Right? Not a whole lot of choice there. However, where are we going to get these women? All villages of 300 households or more must submit one woman to be a prostitute. 
right? One woman out of 300 households. Um, it's actually a low number when you think about it. Uh, 300 households, four or five people per household, a village of 1,500 people, and they're asking for one girl from each village. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying, you know, this, this gives us some sense of the scale, perhaps, uh, on the front lines of China, Okay, um, it's not necessarily you're going into villages and rounding up every single young woman between the age of 12 and 30. All right, um, uh, they must be you know, 20 years old, healthy, good looking, uh, sent for examination. All right, they're going to be examined. It's not just anything goes here. It's supposed to be some sort of standard of hygiene and health is supposed to be maintained. And then we also see here the ideal of compensation. You'll get a one-time payment. And then every month, the Association for Maintaining Order, because of course this is all about maintaining order, right, uh, will we'll, we'll give you essentially a monthly salary, all right, provisions to survive. Now you have to think, 25 kilograms of wheat flour, 10 cups of millet, 2 pints kerosene, and 50 kilograms of coal. Um, is it, you know, the individual 20-year-old woman who's probably eager for these things? Perhaps, but probably her family. Her family is eager for this stuff. And you have to think, if you go into a village of 300 households or more, and you're looking for one girl, the odds that you're going to find at least one very destitute, miserable family who says, you know what? This is a good deal because you know what? We're on the verge of having to sell you, you know, to sell our daughter anyways uh, to the next stranger or we might have to put you into prostitution anyways. This is very common. You know, these are the rural areas where women are already heavily discriminated against. And when your family uh, meets the economic, uh, uh, economic apocalypse, the first thing that goes is the daughter. You sell her into prostitution or hopefully you sell her as a child bride to another family or, you know, but one way or the other, you're selling your daughter. So think from their perspective, they're thinking, well, we already are probably, you know, on the verge of putting you into some sort of, you know, humiliating, compromising situation. This looks a little more formal. Um, and this is a Japanese military. Surely they have the resources to actually uh, make good on their promises. Um, this is probably a deal that if it actually is implemented as it looks on, on paper, uh, would appeal to rural poor families. Okay. Are they happy about it? Of course not. Is the 20-year-old the girl happy about it? Hell no. Uh, I'm just trying to give you, you know, make you understand the conditions, the historical circumstances that would lead people to do this and try to blur the lines, just make it a little more complex when you're thinking about issues of coercion, consent, voluntary, involuntary, and you can come down wherever you want on that. Uh, I just want to make sure you're aware of all these complex factors that are involved that inform people's decision-making. Okay, and how all sides can still think in theory um, that I'm not doing such a horrible thing. The parents are saying, you know, probably uh, we're doing good for our family. This is what we have to do to survive. And if the Japanese military wasn't here and it was peacetime, we might be selling our daughter or otherwise leveraging her body into economic resources anyways. The Japanese are saying, hey, we didn't ask for that much. One girl in a village of 1,500 people. Um, and look what we're giving her, the compensations. And then she might get gifts from Japanese soldiers who really like her. She might make out pretty well in this deal. All right, so you know, all these perspectives are involved. Now, this is very difficult for researchers to study. Uh, I'm sort of giving you this guerrilla warfare approach to atrocities because that's all we really have to go on. Uh, governments would be very reticent to talk about this issue after the war. Most of the Japanese records were deliberately destroyed, which is why we often only have things that survive in local administrations, like the local Chinese governments that worked together after their villages were conquered. And the survivors oftentimes were ashamed to talk. In fact, it wasn't until much later, 40, 50 years after World War II ended, uh, that you started getting women who had survived this experience who were willing to talk. And it was usually, uh, uh, you know, sort of proactive uh, scholars, Japanese, Korean, and Western academics, historians, uh, who studied this sort of stuff, who decided to go out in the 1980s and the 1990s when, you know, the Cold War was, the tensions of the Cold War finally were receding, especially in the 1990s after the Soviet Union falls in 1991 and China has reformed and opened up. That's when you finally got uh, these scholars going in and saying, I'm going to see if I can find old, you know, uh, elderly women who may have uh, experienced the comfort women process and interview them. Um, and so what we got starting in the 1990s and the, two, and the early 2000s is we got the first sort of memoirs of comfort women, 
Uh, oftentimes they were illiterate, and so these were oral interviews that were done by outside scholars. And much of our knowledge of how this all worked is derived from these memoirs, these oral history projects. Are the memoirs credible? Most scholars say yes. Uh, you know, many politicians uh, who know they have a lot to lose if this stuff actually comes out will say no. Uh, but most scholars say yeah. You know, you sort of analyze them the same way you analyze any sort of person's testimony to see if they're lying or not. Um, they're saying, what are the incentives? Was there any incentive to embellish this experience for this 90-year-old woman in a rural village in 1993 in China or Korea uh, talking about this traumatic experience? Uh, there's no pension available to recognize survivors. There's no economic compensation. Your own government, as we'll see in a minute, did nothing to compensate you for what you went through. Japan didn't do it. Korea didn't do it. China didn't do it. There's no plaque. There's no public commemoration of your suffering. Only war heroes, you know, only men who die in battle or women who took up a gun or died in a factory that was bombed while they were making munitions for the war effort. Those are the people who get valorized. Those are the people who they make statues about and put up plaques and say, here, you know, on this day, so-and-so, 15 Chinese martyrs, Korean martyrs died in the righteous war to resist Japanese aggression. The countries don't commemorate comfort women. Here, uh, 25 of our local village girls were repeatedly raped every single day by Japanese soldiers. And uh, all those Japanese soldiers uh, went on and lived their lives and there was no punishment whatsoever. Yeah, you can already see that's going to be a difficult rallying cry for people to take pride in. So there's no, there's no public commemoration of your suffering, like there's public commemoration of other types of suffering. It was often too shameful to acknowledge, both for the women themselves and their families and their communities, and they were often socially ostracized afterwards. Um, and now they're 80, 90-year-old women um, living with a host of ailments, um, and they're telling these stories. And these stories are very specific. Right? People who analyze sort of, you know, testimony of uh, 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 criminal suspects to say, is this person telling the truth or not? Uh, you know, they analyze these sort of things as well. And they'll say, you know, a, there, there is a degree of specificity and uh, recurrence of uh, common themes across these testimonies that lend them significant credibility. They remember, you know, the weather on the day that they uh, were coerced or took up this fake job offer and then were trapped. Uh, they remember the quilt that they took with them. And then that quilt was the only reminder of home that they hoped to escape to. Uh, there were familiar types of really specific things. Um, and then recurrent themes of how these things operated on the front lines that lend credibility to them. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, during the process of these interviews, you can read the transcripts. The women will often pause um, and they'll tear up or they need a moment to compose themselves. Uh, you know, these sort of things. You know, if, if you were doing this, maybe in the United States, you know, perhaps where, uh, you know, you might have the prospect of a $10 million lawsuit. All right, then some people would come in and say, oh, there's an incentive here, even if that's bullshit as well. And, you know, you can still want to get financial compensation and still have a legitimate story to tell of your suffering. Uh, but here, even that element is totally gone. There's no possibility of suing who? The local male collaborator? So-and-so who lived down the street and is still there and he's 70 years old today? What, are you going to sue him? Are you going to sue the Chinese government? Are you going to sue the Japanese? As we'll see, all these things, you know, yeah, these, these are credible stories. One thing I often always like to throw in here, and I hope no one takes this the wrong way, but I always like to throw in as many perspectives as possible, make it as messy as humanly possible, so we're never just saying this is black and white, it's gray. Um, one thing to think about, don't forget the experience of the Japanese men, the Japanese soldiers. Yes, there's horrible Japanese soldiers. There were sadistic assholes in there as well. Uh, but there were also a lot of good guys. And there were a lot of people in the middle. Okay? Um, and these people were oftentimes think the uh, soldiers in the Japanese military oftentimes were from poor backgrounds themselves. All right? Sometimes they were conscripted, especially as you get later into the war. They were often lied to and deceived themselves by Japanese high command about where they were going, what it would be like, how easy the battle would be, what you're fighting for. Uh, they'd be deceived about progress of the war. Um, and oftentimes they would be, uh, you know, quite miserable in the wartime environment as well, thinking, hey, I don't want to fight for Japan anymore. This is bullshit. Uh, the emperor is a war criminal. Uh, in my class, we read these sort of memoirs of Japanese men as well. 
Um, and they would say, I miss sushi. I miss my mommy. And I want to go home. Um, and oftentimes these people, well, the people who left the memoirs survived, but they'll talk about other guys, their friends in the ranks who were just, who were saying the same things as them. And they weren't so lucky the next day. And it was possible to go to a comfort women's station one day and the very next day or just hours later, be sent out into the front lines and die a horrible death. Body not recovered um, for a stupid war that you didn't want to be a part of. Um, you know, so again, I'm not trying to mitigate it. I'm not trying to give circumstances that say, oh, you know, the Japanese, no, no none of that whatsoever. Um, but think about all the people who are involved here. Everyone comes from a different perspective. They bring in different incentives, different agendas of what they're trying, uh, uh to accomplish. Um, and it's not always black and white. Okay. Uh, we also know one of the striking things, one of the reasons that actually reminded me why I always want to sort of bring up this one issue with the Japanese men, the soldiers themselves, um, and how soldiers can also be suffering victims in some way. You can oppress someone, exploit someone in one moment, and then turn around and be exploited and oppressed yourself. It's actually quite common. Some of the women who were coerced in the most horrible way, sometimes it really was open abduction, later said in their oral history memoirs, there were kind people in the Japanese ranks. There were evil, sadistic bastards too. But there were also kind people and a lot of guys somewhere in the middle, swept up in something they didn't understand, scared for their lives, um, you know, shy. And they're all wondering what the hell is going on as well in this crazy world that we live in. Now, one other thing to think about is the implications of the rural origins of many of the comfort women. Okay, uh, what, no matter where it is. Uh, as I said before, if you are wealthy, if you're in the city, usually you can exchange the orders to procure women for something else, if necessary, for money usually. Okay, so most of the comfort women, regardless of where they come from, are rural and poor and often illiterate. All right, what this often means is that they come from a background in which their families are probably far more conservative than urban, educated, you know, better off families uh, tend to be. And they will have uh, uh, concomitant ideas about chastity, female chastity, that will not bode well for the future livelihood prospects of many of these women. Okay, uh, they were often already discriminated against from the day they were born. Uh, their brothers or the people who got all the resources in the family, whether they were rural Korea, rural China, rural Taiwan. Uh, their brothers were the ones uh, who oftentimes uh, would uh, be sent to school, uh, you know, be given the best food. Um, and the women were discriminated against from birth, and they were told, your chastity is the most important thing. It is an economic asset to the family. Um, and so to uh, lose your ability, your one leverage over your family, your virginity, okay, that's what your family essentially values you for in a, in a, in a, in a poor rural environment. Their ability to sell you off to a husband one day uh, who's only going to want to, you know, take you and pay the bride price if you are a virgin. And if you're not, your value plummets. So think about that. Most of these women, uh, when they get trapped in this situation um, and they go back to their families if they survive the ordeal, um, they've lost all, the, you know, the one little shred of leverage that a girl has in her family in this sort of context has been totally obliterated. You haven't just lost your chastity. You've lost it a thousand times. Totally humiliating. Um, in, in a very real sense, you, you have become worthless to your family. Worse than worthless, you have become a liability to them, a shameful liability. Now, that's not always the case. And sometimes girls were valued, and you would see, you know, this sort of stuff, uh, you know, natural human relationships come to the forefront. Uh, but it's also important to understand that these weren't just any women. Right? They were specifically poor rural women most of the time. And that mattered for the additional suffering that they would undergo later on. What was the post-war legacy for the comfort women? Psychological, physical, personal torture in many ways. Psychological. In the oral histories, they all talk about recurrent nightmares. That's understandable. Physical consequences. Many of them could not bear a child afterwards. They'd be, they found that their bodies were sterile. Or they found that it was very difficult to bear just one. 
Um, uh, we know that you know also these poor rural backgrounds. Not only are, are, are boys valued, but you have to raise that boy to adulthood. Uh, a woman needs to have a son. You can't have a son, you're in big trouble. That's actually, in many places, that's grounds for a legitimate legal divorce by the husband. A no-fault divorce is to divorce a woman because she can't produce an heir. That was legally allowed in many of these places. So that's another issue. You're already sort of tainted in their eyes. Now you're further tainted. You can't even produce a son to take care of your family in old age. And oftentimes they would just have chronic pain, chronic physical pain uh, from what they had to go through. Uh, why? Well, oftentimes they were uh, injected or forced to swallow various types of uh, medicinal treatments. Uh, one of them that we know was called sal uh, salvarsin used to treat syphilis. Another one was teramecin, an antibiotic that stops the spread of infections. These were very commonly injected or uh, uh, swallowed as pills as a prophylactic or as a treatment to, to help the women get better because, you know, these system, these comfort stations are not regulated. It's, uh, you know, the hours are long. There are very few breaks. Hygiene is not regulated like it's supposed to be. So how do you rectify the situation without, you know, having to fix the whole corrupt system, take a pill, take a pill, uh, here's some medicine, and just do it over and over and over and over again. And obviously, this is going to result in massive per, you know, physical complications and pain for the rest of your life. And then finally, again, as I was saying, marriage options afterwards, all very undesirable. Everyone knows, everyone knew what happened to you during the war. You had to physically leave the village. Everyone knows, and they're talking about it. One example I remember from these oral testimonies is a Chinese woman in her old age saying the only man I could marry had leprosy. That was the only husband that I could get after this. A guy who had leprosy. And even he used my past as a comfort woman as an excuse to beat me and curse me all the time. She said even my own children swear at me because they hear their dad reveal my shameful past as a comfort woman. And then they revile me and use it against me as well. This is what people mean when they say it might be better to die than to live on, when you have to live in conditions like this. All right, now let's deal with the post-war silences. Why didn't the women themselves talk? All right, there's several different levels to this, local, national, and international. On the local level, as we've already sort of alluded to, um, you've been labeled, everyone talks about you openly and disdainfully as a Japanese whore, a, a, a traitor to your country, whether you, you know, were coerced into it, tricked into it, or not. That's not, you know, people are, aren't usually uh, acknowledging the nuance and all this stuff, how it happens. Um, in China, after 1949, when the Chinese communists come to power, having a background as a comfort woman was enough to give you a bad class background label and sent to labor camps whenever there was a political persecution campaign. Remember, as far as most men are concerned, women and farms represent the nation because they represent fertility, the things we eat, and the, the, the means by which the next generation is born. Farms and women equal the abstract nation. Okay? Um, and if you're women, in this sense, have been tainted, not just sort of tainted in a mild way, tainted in the worst possible way from the perspective of a man in a hyper-masculine society. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to talk. You want to talk about this as little as possible. Because everyone else already talks about it openly and disdainfully against you. Uh, so this is not something you're going to be always going around. Hey, I was forced to serve as a comfort woman. Doesn't anyone have sympathy? How about, how about we, 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 we prosecute the Japanese? Where's my compensation? Why aren't people, lo local collaborators going to jail? No, you shut the hell up. And you try to hope beyond hope that people will forget about this and you can go on with your life. At the national level, remember... The shameful raping of the national symbol of your nation, women, is not the preferred narrative of the new post-war states. Okay? Um, that's not what gets valorized in public squares and statues and museums and this sort of stuff. All right? You publicize the cruel slaughter of everyone. Our soldiers in battle or maybe the, the massacre of Nanjing. All right, that includes everyone. Men, women, children. That's sort of an easy metaphor for the rape of China is the rape of Nanjing. The irony there is that the real rape of Chinese women is a war crime that will be largely untouched after the war, whereas uh, uh, the massacre of 
both genders and children, uh, does end up getting referred to as the Rape of Nanjing. I actually prefer to call it the Massacre of Nanjing uh, for precisely that region. That region. That reason. All right. Uh, again, also remember from the national perspective, it's easier to valorize people who died. They can't speak up anymore and complicate your official narrative of what happened. <laughs> you, you can sort of project onto them whatever you want to project onto them. Uh, you don't know that your soldiers died missing mommy and daddy and saying, fuck the emperor. Fuck Chiang Kai-shek. I don't want to die. I want to go home. You don't know that. They probably did die with those sentiments on their mind, scared shitless and swearing about the whole world and what was in it and saying, this war is stupid. Why are we doing this? That's probably how they died. But you don't know that. Or if you know that, you can change it and you can project onto them. Oh, they died, you know, heroically trying to defend the Chinese nation, the Korean nation, proud sons and daughters of the nation fighting for it, you know, to, to, to save this ancient civilization. And they can't contest that narrative because they're dead. Comfort women, most of them are alive. All right. It was a non-fatal sexual exploitation of our women. So you can already see the multiple elements involved here that are going to be a disincentive for those who are in power, usually men, to say, no, there's, why are we going to publicize this issue? They can still talk. All right? And they didn't die. And it's really shameful. It means, you know, what, 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 what does it mean? What does the comfort women symbolize? It symbolizes the inability of men to protect their women. The ultimate attack on masculinity. And you take that to a national level, comfort women, you know, it's, it's a very poor candidate for public valorization. You're going to sweep that under the rug. You're going to sweep that under the rug. If the issue was ever raised with authorities, and it sometimes was at the local level, usually the women were simply told that it was too hard to investigate the local collaborators. Well, I mean, the whole village is implicated. Everyone knew that you were leaving. This guy, okay, maybe he took a kickback. He worked with the Japanese. But we all had to work with the Japanese. You think he had a choice? If this, if, if, if this one guy didn't work with the Japanese and procure com, you know, you know, women for prostitutes for the Japanese military, uh, what do you think would have happened to him? The Japanese might have taken him out and shot him with a bullet in the back of the head. Where do you end? How do you pursue this? It's tough when everyone's involved and everyone knows. What about the international level, though? The big post-war powers had other fish to fry, and they also did not prioritize the grievances of poor rural women. Especially not poor rural Asian women, because most of the big powers are not Asian. Right, yes, the uh, Chinese Nationalist Party, their government under Chiang Kai-shek, will be one of the post-war powers, but they're involved in a civil war with the Chinese communists, and they're all, all already regarded as, you know, by far the junior member of the British, Soviet, and uh, American alliance. Um, and they don't have a whole lot of leverage afterwards. Pretty much the other powers say, you know what? Yeah, you did a good job in bogging down the Japanese, but, you know, that's pretty much all you did, right? You just bogged down the Japanese and, you know, kept throwing Chinese soldiers at them. And eventually, we're the ones who truly defeated the Japanese, right? Uh, you know, the Chinese didn't invade Japan. They didn't turn back the tide. They just, you just sort of, you know, got the Japanese stuck in the mud. And then we came and defeated them. That was sort of the attitude. We won the war, not you. So we get all the leverage in the post-war world. And, you know, we are also objectively just the stronger, wealthier power as well. So Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government knows he doesn't have huge leverage in the post-war world. He's fighting for his own life in China, as a matter of fact, against the Chinese communists. Uh, he might just have, you know, he's got to put all of his eggs in one basket and figure out what are we going to prosecute. So the International Military Tribunal for the Far East why didn't it really go after the comfort women issue? Well, we know that there were uh, 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 charges submitted by lawyers for the International Military Tribunal for the Far East uh, who did address the comfort women, but that ultimately the tribunal did not prioritize it. Why was the tribunal so disinterested? Well, we can see uh, uh, many different factors. Okay, I'm going to outline six factors uh, briefly here. Racism. Okay, uh, most obvious. Most war crimes that were prosecuted were only those that were, pro that, that were inflicted against white people, mostly POW white prisoners. Uh, 
All right, not Asians. Uh, so there are two comfort women cases that are prosecuted, and one of the two, 50%, was towards a Dutch woman. A Dutch woman. Okay? Um, you know, the, most war crimes are going to, against the Japanese are going to be against uh, 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 American and British and Australian soldiers, often in POW camps or, you know, uh, forced slave labor that they would often be forced to do. You also have the, pa the patriarchal ethos of all militaries everywhere uh, fosters general insensitivity towards the plight of women and the fact that all the politicians <laughs> who are calling the shots in the post-war order are all men as well, more or less. Um, rape was often seen as not political enough. It's difficult to fry big political fish with it. How are we going to tie uh, Hideki Tojo to the comfort women to rape? Uh, oftentimes at the highest level, all you get are these bland ideal documents that talk about compensation, regulated hours, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you're not going to pin down any big figure with this. Okay? Uh, you know, it's not like the order to go to war or the order to sack the city of Nanjing. Comfort women is, is, is a tough, amorphous issue um, that it's going to be hard to, to sort of crystallize into uh, an accusation against an identifiable person that you want to take down. Also, we have to look at the China strategy. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek's party said, you know what, we're only going to get one shot here. We want to make sure we, we get the most uh, uh, bang for our buck in the military tribunal. And so they say, what, what are we going to focus on? Of all the things we can focus on, let's go after the Nanjing Massacre. All right, the Nanjing Massacre. Uh, it was seen as being more uh, uh, worth pursuing. It was easier to pin down who gave the orders uh, uh, to do what the Japanese military did in Nanjing, and you can make a great symbol out of it. Everyone was killed in Nanjing. Men, women, children, soldiers, civilians, whatever, even foreigners. Um, you know, so uh, Nanjing was the capital of uh, nationalist China. Um, so in every single respect, they say, we're going after the, the Nanjing Massacre. The Nanjing Massacre also crucially had foreign witnesses, which gives you more credibility. Eyewitnesses, foreigners, you know, white people essentially, who were in Nanjing, recorded what happened in their letters, in their diaries, and lived to tell about it afterwards. So you have eyewitness testimony. Where are you going to get eyewitness testimony for the comfort women? No one wants to talk about it. They're ashamed of it. Uh, the rural men are beating their rural women because they're so ashamed of what their wife did during the war. Do you think they're going to go and on the world stage go to a tribunal and talk about what happened? No. Nanjing Massacre. That's, what, that's in the realm of the possible of getting your pound of flesh from the Japanese after World War II. And that's what the Chinese go after. Then you also get Cold War politics. By the time the tribunal is in force, you already have the beginning the, the, uh, of the shift in which uh, the United States and the Britain are starting to think, you know what, um, we're, our, our, our new major competition, our new rival is the Soviet Union, the Russians. Um, and we need to compete for the loyalties of the post-war states that are up for grabs. And Japan is one of those. Um, and as we'll see when we get into later episodes and we talk about the legacy of the Japanese empire and whatnot, we'll see how the United States essentially says, you know what, there's not a whole lot to be gained from beating the Japanese over and over again with the stick of what they did during the war. Um, you know, we held them accountable. We'll, we'll get a few big names like, you know, the military officers and whatnot. Um, and we'll leave it at that because what we actually want is we want the Japanese to stay within the U.S. orbit and not sort of lean towards the Russians or lean towards the Chinese. The, the natural market for Japan is in Asia, but we want to reorient them towards the United States. Uh, that's not going to happen if we're constantly making them feel awful about what they did during the war. All right, so you're going to see the, the exact opposite in which actually multiple countries, communist China after 49 and the United States, will actually bend over backwards to compete for the friendship and goodwill of the Japanese people and say, you know, forget about World War II. No, we don't want to talk about that. We want you to potentially open up your markets to us, lean towards our political camp. Um, and obviously talking about comfort women and atrocities and all this sort of stuff is not going to be a way, a good way to do that. And then finally, it often hit too close to home. All right, you're going to try the Japanese for uh, military regulated prostitution when the United States has their own similar systems in Japan. Occupied Japan, uh, you have regulated prostitution in Okinawa in the Japanese islands to serve U.S. military personnel. Uh, no, we don't want to draw attention to this uh, because who knows where it might end up. 
All right. Um, now, what about the Japanese response? Um, Japanese response. Uh, generally speaking, whenever during the Cold War this came up, there was a blanket denial. This didn't happen. This didn't happen. Or if it did happen, it was totally voluntary. This wasn't coerced prostitution. These are, these are just prostitutes. That's it. Those kind of denials went on for many, many decades. There was no incentive. No one, no, no one was providing the Japanese with an incentive to admit that any of this shit happened. Finally, in the 80s and 90s, the end of the Cold War and then after this collapse of the Soviet Union, more scholars start getting access to more archives, be more tenacious, get oral history testimonies and know that this really happened and start pursuing this sort of stuff uh, with more vigor than before. And finally, some scholars start uncovering some government documents, Japanese archival documents. The first survivor oral testimonies are printed and published, and it gets media attention. This is in the 1990s. And then finally, in the 1990s, you get the Japanese government, uh, certain officials uh, would admit, quote, feelings of apology and reflection. But they would stop far short of saying this is this is not a war crime or anywhere near a war crime. Um, and generally speaking, it was voluntary. Uh, these were just prostitutes. Yes, it's wartime and shit happens during war. Uh, but we can't be responsible for that. We can't be responsible for what happens in an active battleground. And so, you know, so therefore, there's no possibility of compensation. You don't want to open that Pandora's box that we're going to start paying people. 400,000 comfort women demanding compensation? No, hell no. So they went back to their standard defenses. All right? This was a private venture. Local prostitutes organized by local businessmen and intermediaries and collaborators who worked with us, and everyone was happy with the situation. The women wanted to be there. They were voluntary, and they were paid for their services. There was no state enforcement or coercion. Prove it. This is paid prostitution. And the other major defense, and this one legally was much more important, is that Japan signed a whole bunch of peace treaties with various countries during the Cold War. 1952, San Francisco Peace Treaty with the United States. Other treaties will follow with various countries. Um, the, and uh, these treaties basically had language that said all claims and things that happened from World War II have been resolved. We've already settled everything. Because at that time, no government wanted to bring this up. You were competing for Japan's loyalties in the Cold War environment, or you were ashamed of the comfort women, or you put all your eggs in the Nanjing Massacre, whatever. All right? But none of these post-war Asian states made it a priority themselves. And they signed treaties that reflected their lack of interest in this issue. And so, you know, you get the situation where the general masses, the women themselves, are incensed. I lived through this. And then my own government basically signed a treaty that says, you know, there's no claims. World War II is over. It's in the past. We've settled all claims. All legal issues are done for. I didn't sign that treaty. You can't sign it on my behalf. Well, they did. So now, how do you reverse the situation? How do you, how, how, how do you puncture the armor of these legal treaties that were signed that say no more compensation? We already have resolved everything from World War II. Your only choice is through grassroots media shaming and bad press. That's hard to do, but they did it. And that was one of the reasons why it got more attention in the 1990s and the 2000s. Scholars going out, compiling oral testimonies, brave comfort women coming out and saying, I want my story told before I died. Before I die. This is not okay. I've been suppressed for 40 years and I want to say what happened. You need to know what happened. Okay. And what you eventually got was a landmark announcement in 2015. This is recent. This is not that long ago at all. 2015, Japan and South Korea reached a deal in which Japan said we will give 1 billion yen in compensation to South Korea to have this issue resolved. It issued a formal Japanese government apology that this stuff happened and we're sorry for it and we're responsible for it. And this funds of a billion dollars were dispersed to various women who could submit a claim of having to, uh, Korean women who could submit a claim uh, to being a comfort woman. Uh, that money would be distributed to them through a nonprofit Korean foundation that received the one billion yen. 
But then they also said, as part of this deal in 2015, no more criticizing each other, no more criticizing the Japanese about comfort women at the United Nations or in the press. The issue is finally and irreversibly resolved. Now, there's still a lot of problems with that. This is just Korea. Uh, I don't know the details of the terms of how you submit a claim, but I imagine it's pretty tough. Uh, how do you prove it? Uh, that you were, you know, there's no documentation, probably. It happened 50 years ago. It happened 70 years ago. Most people are dead. Just by natural causes, if not as a direct result of what, what you suffered during the war. Um, and it's just Korea. Yes, they were 80% of the Korean, of the comfort women outside of China. But what about the Chinese? Who were 200,000 of them. All right. As you'll see with other atrocities, chiefly in China, it's not that simple. You can't just wish the anger of the masses away. You can't just write it off. And lots of people will continue to try to compete for public attention of their grievances that their own governments downplayed once the stresses and restrictions of the Cold War faded. Unfortunately, when that environment finally opened up in which people could talk about it, it's so late that most everyone's dead now. I mean, we're in 2020. Damn, World War II ended 75 years ago. 75 years ago. Who's still alive? If you were 20 back then, you're 95 now. So there's the real tragedy of all of this. When you finally reach a time in which this stuff can be talked about and compensation might be given and your, 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 your suffering might be heard, um, the odds that you're still alive with memory of this, clear memories and can talk about it, uh, are very, very small. Are very, very small. All right, next time we continue our march through World War II atrocities in Asia with the Nanjing Massacre and Unit 731 in episode 56 of Beyond Huaxia. Thank you.